In his excellent book titled Make Up Your Mind About the Issues of Life, Dr. Charles Swindoll writes these words in the chapter titled Stay on Target. And I quote, Jesus Christ, our ultimate leader, has clearly declared our philosophy. It is recorded in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, which read, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Don't just scan those words. Study them. They form the target of the local church, but they have been virtually ignored in this day of maddening activity. If we move very far from this target, we miss the mark. Why has the Lord given leadership to equip the saints? Why are the saints to be equipped to serve? Why is it so important to serve, to build up the body? These are not multiple choice questions, not pick and choose issues. They are the foundation, our bottom line philosophy. Press these matters to the maximum, and it's amazing how simple and exciting our job really is. Who is the major target of our ministry? The Christian. What is the major need in his or her life? Being equipped to serve, end quote. Those words are based on the passage that we want to consider this morning as we kick off our new ministry year. That passage is Ephesians chapter 4. If you are not already there, please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4 and follow along as I read verses 11 through 16. We will not go through all of these, but I want to read the paragraph in its entirety so we know where the verses we're going to consider end up in their culmination, but we'll only consider verses 11 and 12. But follow along as I read 11 through 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. There isn't a passage in all the Word of God that has impacted my view of ministry as much as Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. This passage outlines God's divine pattern for His church. And I hope that would matter to you. I hope it matters to you how God has designed His church to function. And please, as we study this passage or a portion of it this morning, don't pass this off as just being theoretical or idealistic. The reason I say that is because sometimes 
When I am asked about long-range goals or plans for our church, I will point to this passage. And when I do, I often hear statements like, well, that's good theory, but it will never work practically. Or that's, that's good, but that's being idealistic. The principles found in this text can become a reality in a practical way. Yet it's amazing to me that almost every seminar, conference, and book on church growth, because I observe those things, almost everyone ignores this passage of Scripture. The result is that we have thousands of churches that are like the church at Laodicea, where Jesus Christ is on the outside trying to get into his own church, standing at the door, knocking to get in. You see, according to Matthew 16... Jesus Christ will build his church if we follow the principles he has given us. And one of the most central passages on the subject is this one right here before us. A little bit of background on this passage because we're jumping into the middle of a chapter here. Verses 11 through 16 are all one sentence in the original language. This is actually the seventh extended sentence in the letter to the Ephesians. It is one of its characteristics, extended sentences. This is the seventh. And because it is all one sentence, I wanted to read all of it for us to have the whole picture in our minds. The key phrase in the entire extended sentence is found at the first part of verse 12. And that is the phrase, depending on your translation, the perfecting of the saints. Or it could be translated the equipping of the saints or the maturing of the saints. Everything else in the passage comes as a result of that. Everything else is dependent on the perfecting or equipping or maturing of the saints. Before we look at that phrase, the central phrase, let's back up and get a running start. Verse 11 tells us that he himself, referring to the Lord Jesus, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. When our Lord Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven to the right hand of the Father, he didn't leave the church helpless. He didn't leave the church on its own. In fact, back in verse 7, we are told, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So when the Lord ascended back to the Father, he did at least three things to ensure the health of his church. Number one, he sent the Holy Spirit. He said to his men in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. Even though I'm leaving you, I'm not leaving you because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he did. Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, the day of Pentecost, Secondly, Jesus also gifted every Christian to be able to minister in some way so that when we all function together, we manifest Christ. That's what verse 7 is saying. A third thing Jesus did for his church to ensure its health is he gave certain men to function in leadership capacities. Our text deals with numbers 2 and 3. Verses 7 and 8 tell us, along with other passages in the New Testament, that the Lord has gifted every believer to be able to minister to others. 
So honestly, there's no excuse for a lack of ministering to other people. There's no excuse for that as a Christian. But then verse 11 tells us that Jesus also did something else. He gave the church gifted men for leadership. Notice what he says in verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. The first group listed in verse 11 is the apostles. The apostles played a very key and unique role in God's program for his church. Ephesians 2.20 says they were foundational to the church. The apostles were divinely appointed representatives of Jesus Christ. According to 1 Corinthians 9.1, an apostle had to have seen the resurrected Christ personally. According to Hebrews 2, 1-4, God authenticated their ministry with special miracles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 further supports that by referring to miracles as the signs of an apostle. The apostles had a unique ministry in giving the church the New Testament. You see, the apostles didn't study the New Testament as we do. They wrote it. Acts 2.42 says the church, the early church, studied the apostles' doctrine. Now that doesn't mean that the apostles made it up. They wrote it. The Lord used his apostles to dispense his revelation, dispense his doctrine, his truth to the church. Paul indicates that in Ephesians 3.5. The apostles had a special role in laying the foundation of the church. But once that foundation was laid, they were no longer needed. The apostles have passed off the scene. I know there are those today who claim to be apostles, and there are those who say there is some kind of apostolic succession, but the Bible speaks of no such thing. If the apostles, according to Ephesians 2.20, are the foundation of the church, Why would they still be around in the 21st century? You don't put the foundation of the building on the 21st story. You put it down at the very beginning. You lay the foundation and build on that. And even though there are those today who claim to duplicate apostolic miracles, no one has ever raised the dead and proved it. The apostles were unique. When their function was completed, they passed off the scene. The second group of individuals here in verse 11 is the prophets. The prophets followed up the work started by the apostles. The apostles were always on the move, leading people to Christ, establishing local churches, appointing elders to leadership. Then they would move on. But it seems from the New Testament that the prophets were the ones who stayed and continued to teach the apostolic doctrine to the already organized churches. This would be similar to the role today known as pastors or elders. According to Ephesians 2.20, the prophets also were foundational to the church. The prophets would occasionally receive direct revelation from God, according to 1 Corinthians 14. And we see a couple of examples of it in the book of Acts. But once the New Testament was completed by the apostles, there was no further need for prophets to receive new revelation because God's word was available to everyone. So there are no longer any prophets today 
in the strict sense of the term. Now, there are those who speak as prophets. We know what we mean when we use that term. We might say, boy, God has raised up so-and-so, a prophet in our day. We know what we're talking about. There are those who speak as prophets. They proclaim the word of God, but there are no prophets in the strict sense of the term. The third group of individuals in verse 11 is the evangelists. The first two groups in verse 11 are foundational. They have passed off the scene. The third group in verse 11 is the evangelists. Now, whenever you hear that word, who knows what comes to your mind? Some people think of someone with, you know, 10 suits and 10 sermons. He just travels around and changes suits and changes sermons wherever he goes. Others think of an evangelist as someone who holds citywide crusades. Others, when they hear the term, they think of someone who preaches to people through television. But in the New Testament, an evangelist was someone who was characterized by four things. One, he went to a place where Christ wasn't named. Two, he led people to faith in Christ. Three, he established a church and trained elders to take over the leadership. And four, he then moved on to another area where Christ wasn't named and began the process all over. So an evangelist is someone with the ability to go into an area and establish a local church. Today, we call these people church planters. The fourth group of individuals in verse 11 is teaching shepherds. Now you need to understand that there is a difference of opinion among Bible scholars as to this this fourth group of individuals. Some feel that there are two distinct groups here, pastors and teachers, and there is some good grammatical evidence for that. Others feel that the Greek construction indicates that it should be translated teaching pastors or shepherding teachers. So we're just going to refer to this group for now as teaching shepherds. The word pastor here is the Greek word poimen, and it describes the function of shepherding, caring for, looking after the sheep, feeding the sheep. It's interesting to note that this is the only time, now it may surprise you to hear this, this is the only time in the New Testament that an individual is referred to as a pastor, as we know it. Every other place in the Bible, a pastor is referred to, as we call him. He is called an elder, or a teacher, or an overseer. But he is never called the pastor. Or he is never called the minister. That is such a terrible title. The only one that may be worse is reverend. But the minister comes close. That, that title, the minister, gives the impression that one man is the minister and all other Christians are the ministeries, if that's even such a word. Beloved, that totally undermines everything this passage is saying and undermines everything Jesus planned for his church. God expects every Christian to be a minister. It's not that God expects everyone to be in vocational ministry. But he does expect every Christian to minister to other people in some way. That's why there are so many one another's in the New Testament. And that's why the Lord has gifted every Christian in some way. So that every Christian can minister to other people in some way. And some, this passage tells us, some he's gifted with leadership abilities. Jesus Christ has given these teaching shepherds to the church, verse 11 tells us. 
Teaching shepherds are different from evangelists in that evangelists lead people to Christ, establish the church, raise up or appoint elders, and then they move on. The teaching shepherds have more of a permanent role, teaching, leading, shepherding the flock, feeding the flock. There are a couple of passages that describe beautifully the function of teaching shepherds. I want us to look at both of them. One of them is Acts chapter 20. So go back to the left prior to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, prior to Romans, to Acts chapter 20. And here Paul is reviewing, rehearsing the ministry he had in the church at Ephesus for over three years. And he's called the elders together, and he's basically reviewing with them, summarizing his ministry with them. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. He says, therefore, remember he's speaking to the elders here, the shepherds. Therefore, take heed to yourselves... And to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Paul summarized this responsibility of leadership in two words. Lead and feed. Take the oversight and shepherd the church of God. Men in leadership are to lead and feed the people of God. The Apostle Peter describes the same ministry over in 1 Peter 5. Go over near the end of the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that Peter received his definition of leadership, spiritual leadership, directly from the Lord Jesus by way of example and instruction. So you can hear our Lord's words coming through Peter's exhortation here In 1 Peter 5, he says this. Verse 1, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Again, we see that the role of teaching shepherds, the role of elders is to lead and to feed. God calls on these men to lead by example and feed by teaching, discipling, giving biblical counsel, biblical input. Now back to our text in Ephesians chapter 4. So why did Christ give these men to the church? Are they given for the purpose of keeping the machinery going of the church? You know, you got to keep all the programs going. Or are they given for the purpose of seeing to it that no one in the church gets upset? Or are they given to the church for the purpose of making sure that no one leaves? What is the ultimate goal of their ministry? Verse 12 tells us, Ephesians 4.12 says, For the equipping of the saints. For the perfecting of the saints. For the maturing of the saints. The purpose of these men is to mature, equip, and train the saints. By the way, the term saints, it's a very common way for Paul to refer to Christians. 
It could be translated holy ones. Maybe it is in some of our English translations. It describes our position in Christ. We are holy. We are sanctified. We are complete positionally. We are saints. The Bible knows nothing of this distinction that some religions or some churches give to certain people where they said they've reached a status of sainthood. The Bible knows nothing of that. All believers in Jesus Christ are saints. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Colossians 2.10 says, You are complete in him. So we are complete. We are holy. We are saints. We are sanctified positionally. But God wants us to be complete and mature practically also. God's great heart desire is for his children to be matured. The perfect illustration of this is a baby. When a healthy baby is born, he or she comes out with all the parts, totally complete. At age one, you don't attach another arm. At age two, another leg. You know, this doesn't work that way. All the parts are there, but he has a long way to grow into full maturity to be equipped and strong and trained to be an effectively reproducing adult. Well, it's the same way with us as Christians. When we receive Christ and are born into God's family, we are complete. We don't need a second work of grace to complete us. We don't need some kind of second blessing to complete us. We need to grow into the fullness of what God has for us by being matured and equipped and trained. God wants us to be equipped and trained. That's what the first phrase of verse 12 is all about. The goal of ministry is the equipping, the perfecting, the maturing of the saints. That should be the burden on the heart of every missionary, every evangelist, every teaching shepherd, every elder. Because this was the burden on the heart of the men in the New Testament. In Colossians 1.28, Paul said, We proclaim Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews had the same burden. In Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, he said, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete. In every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The apostle Peter had the same burden. 1 Peter 5.10, he said, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. You say, wow, where did these men catch this kind of vision? Where did they get this kind of passion, this burden? They got it from Jesus. They got it from him. In Matthew 5, 48, he said, be ye therefore perfect. Now, don't misunderstand this concept and think that it has reference to sinless perfection. The Greek word perfecting here in Ephesians 4.12 is used to refer to maturing or equipping or building up or training, which is how it's translated in many of our English versions. And nothing less than that satisfies the heart of God. Nothing less than that satisfies the heart of God. So then, how does this take place? I mean, if this is God's passion, God's longing, how are the saints perfected, matured, trained, and equipped? How does it happen? According to James 1, 
Testing matures us. Trials mature us. God allows us to go through difficult times, trials and tests in life. And if we respond properly, that does mature us. It does equip us. It's not automatic that if we have trials that we will be matured because sadly, a lot of people have trials and tests in life, but rather than responding properly and being matured, they respond improperly and become angry or bitter. But when responded to properly, trials, adversity, tests have a great way of maturing us. That's one way. The second way, according to 1 Peter 5, suffering matures us. Suffering. Now, again, I would say it's not automatic that if you suffer, you will be matured because the sad truth is some people suffer, but rather than responding properly and being matured, they respond improperly and become angry or bitter. But when responded to properly, suffering in a unique way grows us and matures us and equips us. But think about this. Both of those are God's part. Tests and suffering, trials and suffering. That's God's. We don't have any say-so over that. We don't have any control. It's God's sovereign, what he's ordained, whether we suffer or don't suffer, how much we suffer or what our trials are. That's, that's not our part. What is the role of teaching shepherds to bring the saints to maturity? Well, look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Turn to the right to familiar verses for many of you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This will answer that question. Verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is the very breath of God. It's God-breathed. Therefore, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now watch this. So that the man of God may be complete. That's what we're talking about this morning. So that the man of God may be mature. Some translations, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's the Word of God that matures us and equips us and trains us and perfects us. So think about it this way. If it's the job of teaching shepherds to perfect, mature, equip, and train fellow believers, then teaching shepherds ought to devote their time studying and teaching the Word of God. Teaching shepherds and leaders ought to devote their energy to training and equipping others with the Word of God. This is step one in the Lord's method of building His church. And boy, did the Lord want to make sure that Peter got this. Do you remember in the Gospel of John chapter 21 when the Lord was recommissioning Peter into service and ministry? It was after the resurrection, Jesus and Peter are walking along the Sea of Galilee, walking along the shore, and three times Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, and all three times Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know I love you, you know I love you. And after Peter's response, every time, the Lord said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That's why in Acts 6, when the early church had some ministry needs among the widows and some of the elderly, the leadership didn't run out to personally meet them. In Acts 6.2, they said it's not right for us to leave the Word of God to serve tables. And I can just hear Peter, who was a part of that group there in Acts 6, saying, you know, I remember Jesus telling me, feed my sheep. So even though maybe I'd like to be a part of that ministry, I better keep Jesus' priorities for my time. The apostles knew the priority that the Lord had for them. 
And in that case, in Acts 2, they went on to get the body involved in meeting the ministry needs. You see, beloved, the reason so many churches in our nation are so weak is because they're not willing to follow God's pattern for the life of the church. For example, there are some pastors who want to do all the ministry. They just want to control everything. Total control. So nobody else can do anything because they want to do it all. On the other hand, there are some churches who want the pastors to do all the ministry. And their attitude, maybe even their words is, hey, that's why we pay the guy. He should do it. But in both cases, the will of Jesus Christ is being ignored. Jesus wants a trained, mature, equipped body to do the ministry. And yet, whenever the concept of a ministering body is introduced, it is often put down with statements like, well, that's idealistic. That's unrealistic. But it's not. It's not idealistic. It's not unrealistic. It's just biblical. According to Ephesians 4, 7, as well as other passages, every believer is gifted. A believer who is a spiritual cul-de-sac with no spiritual outlet is a contradiction in terms. According to Ephesians 4.12, when believers are mature, they will do the work of service. They will do ministry. And that's why it's so important to equip the saints. There's no value in just evangelizing the saints over and over and over again. There's no value in just spending time trying to think up new programs Christian activity doesn't accomplish the purposes of God. The saints need to be trained, equipped, matured, perfected. Listen to one man's comments on the subject. Very insightful. I quote, Recently, the church in America has been preoccupied with just getting people into the church building. The number of people in one's building was the important issue. Success in the ministry was based on whether or not you had more bodies in your building than the guy down the street. Churches had all sorts of contests, prizes, and gimmicks just to get people into the building. There were even contests between churches to see who could get the most people. Now churches are becoming more oriented to entertainment. We are in, we are in the midst of a society that doesn't know the meaning of commitment, just convenience. If it's convenient and entertaining, people will come. Everybody wants to know what the church can do for them, but they're not willing to put anything into it. So now, churches pay up to $10,000 a night for a celebrity to come and give a testimony just to draw a crowd. This is not God's pattern for building the church. The goal of the church is not to entertain the saints, coddle the saints, or even evangelize the saints. If the same people are evangelized long enough, they'll think their carnality is spirituality and they'll never mature. The church must get back to the Word of God. And the Word of God says the church is for the perfecting of the saints. End quote. That is God's great heartbeat throughout the New Testament. Now back to our text in Ephesians 4. What happens when the saints are mature? Chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. When saints are mature, they do ministry. And what is the work of ministry? Well, the work of ministry is 
bringing others to Christ, training them and equipping them to continue the process. The work of ministry is encouraging, strengthening, and praying for other believers in a community context. That's what Jesus did for three and a half years. The ministry belongs to the saints. Teaching shepherds have no right to do all the ministry. Christians who are strong and mature and equipped are to be ministers. When Christians minister, they begin to function. They begin to minister, disciple others, and operate their spiritual gift. And that's what the Lord is after. He never intended just a few people to do the ministry. The ministry belongs to the entire body. To put it plainly, you should be involved in ministering in some way. Now, when I say that, I know where a lot of people's minds go, so hear me closely. I'm not telling you you should have an official position in the church. That's what people think when they hear that. They think, oh, that means I need to be a Sunday school teacher or a deacon. or I need. No, you need, to, to put it plainly, you should be involved in ministering in some way. Ministering to people. Don't be content to sit, soak, and sour. Don't be content just to come and worship. Minister to other people. Seek to practice the one another's of the New Testament. Encourage one another. Bear one another's burdens. Admonish one another. Serve one another. Those exhortations are throughout the New Testament, and they don't require that you have any official position to do it. Sometimes I hear people say, when we are announcing a biblical counseling conference or a biblical counseling class, they'll say, wow, that sounds really interesting, but I'm not a counselor. Yes, you are. Sure you are. Every Christian is a counselor. Because every Christian gives counsel. Every Christian gives input to others. The only issue is what kind of input do you give? Is it biblical input or just your own opinion? God wants his people to minister to others and to give good biblical input to others. And when the body does the ministering, look at what happens. Verse 12 says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Then and only then will the body be built up. Then and only then will the body grow. And when I say grow, I don't just mean more people or more numbers, though that could be a part of it. The other part is the spiritual growth of each Christian. You know, it's funny, it's always been funny to me through the years how many people in the church are against growth and change. But that's what the Christian life is all about. A Christian who isn't growing and changing is a stagnant Christian. And a church that isn't growing and changing is a stagnant church. As the Apostle Peter closed his second letter, his last words were, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. A Christian should always be growing and changing. That's what the church is all about. Teaching shepherds, equipping and training the saints. The saints doing the work of ministry. The body of Christ being built up. Beloved, don't you want to be a part of a church like that? I do. So are you doing your part? Look at your life. And ask yourself this question. It's a two-part question. 
It's either one question with two parts or two questions, however you want to hear it. Number one, are you being equipped with the Word of God? Are you, are you putting yourself in a position so that you are being equipped with the Word of God? And second, then are you ministering to other people in some way? Again, I'm not asking you if you have an official position, a title. Are you ministering to people in some way? You ought to be. We all ought to be. Because that's what God has called us to be as his people. Let's bow together as we close. And as we close this morning, as you reflect on what you have seen from God's word and what you have heard, Think further about those two questions. Are you in a position of being equipped with God's word, being trained, matured, perfected? And then secondly, are you ministering to other people in some way? I'm not asking if you have a title or a position, just are you ministering to people in some way? Remember, a Christian who is a spiritual cul-de-sac with no outlet, is a contradiction in terms. God has called all of us to touch other people's lives, to minister to other people. That's what the church is all about. Father, as we close our time together this morning, we pray that our hearts would be challenged, would be gripped with this focus, this vision that comes from your word of what you want us to be individually and what you want us to be as your church. And so may we constantly be thinking, evaluating, looking at our lives and saying, am I, am I putting myself in a position to be equipped with God's word? And in turn, am I ministering to other people? Am I touching other people's lives in some way? Father, we realize that in a crowd this size, there are those present here who do not know you as Father. They don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, they really can't be ministering to others in a spiritual way. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them, use something from our service this morning, though the focus has not been on them and their spiritual condition, but rather on what you want us as a church to be. Still, we know that you can use your truth, whether it be in the Word or in music or in prayer or in in whatever ways, just to cause them to see their need to be right with you through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and draw them to that simple, humble, childlike faith that they would come to know Him and want to live for Him and want their lives to count for eternity and thus be equipped with your Word and minister to others until Jesus comes, in whose name we pray. Amen.